James chapter 5, we will be looking at the final two verses there this morning. And while you make your way over there one more time, let me just uh, say it's been an absolute joy to get to know a couple of your pastors over the years as our paths have consistently crossed and they've been an absolute joy to, to spend time with. And I'm, I'm grateful, again, to be able to come and, and worship with you all this morning, to share some about uh, my ministry with you. It really is a privilege to be here, and I'm thankful for what the Lord is doing uh, here among you and here in this city. So thank you for having me, and thank you for making me feel so welcome uh, this morning. Since my family wasn't able to join me here today, I, I look forward to just getting back and, and sharing with them about uh, this church and everyone that I've been able to meet and be encouraged by uh, this morning, but I'm excited to be here to worship with you, and now I'm excited to open up God's Word with you. So let me read our passage for us, James 5, verses 19 and 20, and then I'll ask for God's help. James 5, verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father, it brings us joy to reflect on how you pursued us and rescued us when we were lost. And yet, Father, we know that we are still prone to wander. And that we need your grace, your help, each and every day of our lives. We believe your word is profitable, that you use your word to meet us where we are, to communicate to us exactly what we need to hear. So, Father, I pray you would do just that through your word this morning, for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. That's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As a parent of three young children, as you've already heard me talk some about this morning, I, I'm often communicating to my children about things that are safe for them to do and about things that are not safe, things that are dangerous, things that they need to stay away from. We've done some traveling with the kids over the last year, and as I've already talked about last year, we, we traveled to Ireland, um, which some people have said we were crazy for doing with our little kids, and you're probably right. run off. It's not safe for you to just take off over in the other direction um, across the airport. Uh, no, you need, to, you need to stay right by daddy or mommy or daddy's side at all times so that we know where you are at all times so that you can be safe. When we got to Ireland, we, we took a train ride from, from Dublin, the city I've been talking about, to Cork, which is another city a few, few hours away. And then a few days later, we took that train ride back up to Dublin again. There are these large gaps between the area where you stand at the train station to, to actually, that you have to be mindful of to get over and get onto the train. So basically between kind of those last steps you're taking before you get onto the train, there's just these really big gaps there. And um, they're large enough that small children can easily fall down into those gaps pretty far onto the train tracks. And <clears throat> actually the gaps are a big enough safety concern that they have signs posted everywhere around the train station that say, mind the gap, warning people to, to pay attention to the gap when they're getting on and off the train. And every time the train makes a stop, it actually made us chuckle. At first, we didn't even know what it was. Eventually, we figured it out. At every stop, there's a recording, a lady's voice you'll hear that'll say, you know, you've arrived at such and such stop, mind the gap. You've arrived at the next stop, mind the gap. You've arrived at stop C, mind the gap, mind the gap, mind the gap. So we spent time preparing for all of this, 
And I gave our kids clear instruction. When we are getting on and off the train, you must wait for daddy. Daddy will tell you when it's time, and daddy will help you get on the train, and daddy will help you get off of the train. But whatever you do, you don't run off and try to do it by yourself because it's not safe for you. So I warned my kids in very strong terms, if you do not stay with me and you fall down there by the train, that won't end well for you. So stay with daddy so you can be safe. Similarly, the Bible often talks about there being two paths. There's the the path to life, the path that is safe, that is full of blessing, and this path there is wisdom. And then there's the path that leads to death. That path is dangerous. That path leads to destruction. It is utterly foolish to go on this path and to stay on this path because death awaits everyone on it. Just like I gave clear instructions to my children when we were traveling, the Bible gives us very clear instruction on how we are to live. It warns us of the grave dangers of choosing the path that leads to destruction, and it calls us to choose the path of life. We see these paths in the wisdom literature, especially in places like Proverbs, where wisdom and folly are are contrasted. James is often referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament, and we see see why uh, as you walk through the book of James, his letter, because he'll contrast the wisdom from above and worldly wisdom. Now, the final verses we're looking at in James this morning are his conclusion to the letter, and just to to set the tone, and so no one is, is caught off guard this morning, I want to give you a heads up. This is, this is a weighty passage, so just be ready for that. But I'm convinced that, that I need this and that you need, and that you probably need this too. Um, again, it's, it's uh, God's word, and I, I, I trust and pray that it will be uh, a blessing to you all as we spend time in it this morning. But here James addresses those who will wander away from the truth, away from the path of life, and he will call you as a church to pursue those who wander away, to go after those who have gone astray, and to seek with all of your energy to rescue them. That's the point of our text this morning. God calls us to pursue those who wander away and to seek to rescue them. Since we're looking at the final two verses in James, and this letter has much that comes before these two verses, I think it'll be helpful for us to zoom out, if only for a moment, so we can consider what this letter as a whole is about, and then we should be able to understand just how fitting this conclusion is. In this letter, James addresses issues of everyday life. He helps us think about our words. Are we speaking words that tear others down, or words of life that build others up? He helps us think about our finances, our wealth, or or our our poverty. And he touches on many other areas of life like suffering, trials, sickness, conflict, and prayer, just to name a few. James's letter is very practical, and it is filled with wisdom. James was Jesus' half-brother, and even though there's very little mention of Jesus specifically in this letter, it is filled with the wisdom of Jesus Christ. James writes with vivid imagery. He gives us illustrations and pictures of boats, of the sea, of forests and fires and farmers. And what James is doing is writing to impart wisdom to followers of Christ so that we might grow in wisdom and live our lives fully devoted to God, not just hearing what is true, but then taking action and living as faithful followers of Christ. So now as we come to James's conclusion to this letter, we might expect to see the usual greetings and benedictions that we're used to seeing in other New Testament letters, but we don't, we don't find those here 
in James. Instead, in a letter that is filled with imperatives, with specific rebukes and commands, James concludes with a final call to action. And here's why it's fitting for him to end in this way. His concern in this letter has been for his readers to put their faith into action, to not only be hearers of the word, but to be doers of it. So James ends his letter by telling his readers, you should be concerned not only with doing the word yourselves, you should be concerned about that, but as a church family, you should also be concerned to see that others are doing the word also, that the whole church family is on board and engaged in faithfully following Christ. As we dig into these final two verses that call us to go after and to rescue the wandering sheep, we'll look at it in three parts. Number one, the wandering sheep. Number two, the rescuing church. And number three, the soul-saving result. So let's begin, first of all, with the wandering sheep. Look with me again at verse 19. It says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. Now James begins, My brothers. This is addressed to believers. It's addressed to the church. So when he says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, he's talking about people within the, within the church family. Now our instinct when we hear this is usually to think of, of other people. And as we'll see, that certainly could be the case. But he wants us to look out for others in the church family that may be wandering from the truth. But the anyone could also refer to you. So we shouldn't make the mistake of only thinking about others and immediately going there when in reality it could, be, it could be you or me. It could be us. Notice how the wandering is described. It's a wandering from the truth. Now this could involve a wandering from, from doctrinal truth. That may be what, what first comes to mind when we read this. But what James has in mind here would go far beyond that. In this letter, James calls us to be wholly devoted followers of Christ. He's concerned about what we believe, but he's also concerned about our life. When he talks about wandering from the truth, he's referring to all that's involved in the gospel. So as, as one person put it, this truth is something that is to be done as well as believed. He's concerned that we are believing what the Bible teaches. He's concerned that we're believing the gospel, that God the Son really was sent by God the Father to this earth, that he lived the life that you and I could not live, and then he died the death we deserved as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And that three days later, he was raised from the grave, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's concerned that we hold to those core truths of the gospel without a doubt. But he's also concerned, just as he shows throughout this letter, that our lives are aligned with the gospel that we profess to believe. That we aren't living lives that are contrary to the gospel we profess now, this is what James has been telling his readers in this letter. We need to hear God's word. We need to hear truth. But we can't stop there. We can't be hearers only. We need to be doers of the truth. And this is what James is addressing. If anyone is wandering from the truth, they're not believing the truth of the gospel. They're not doing the truth of the gospel. They're not living it out. And this is just one kind of more obvious example. But if someone is living in ongoing, unrepentant sin and they are living a life that does not align with the gospel of Christ. Their life doesn't align with the gospel that they profess themselves to believe. Our doctrine is incredibly important, but so is our life. They shouldn't be separated. They, they belong together. Now, just by thinking through what James has already covered in this letter, if you're familiar with James, if you've read through it, you'll, you'll pick up on some of these things and remember them. 
We can see that wandering could take on many different forms, even as James has addressed things in his letter. James has talked about trials in chapter 1. Perhaps you're in, in danger of wandering from the truth because of a trial that has entered your life and you're not responding to it in faith. Or maybe you've been tempted lately to wander from the truth by showing partiality, as James talks about in chapter 2. Or maybe as you examine your speech, you realize that you've wandered from the truth as you've been using your tongue to tear other people down, as James has talked about in chapter 3. Or maybe you've wandered from the truth by slandering others or stirring up division or creating conflicts and controversies in the body of Christ, as James talks about in chapter 4. Or perhaps as you look at your prayer life, you sense you, you've wandered from the truth as evidenced by a lack of prayer. Maybe you're, you're no longer turning to God in prayer as James calls you to do in, in James chapter 5. These last two verses are connected to and flow from everything else that James says in this letter. And, yeah, if you even just think about the great hymn, Come Thou Fount, it's, uh, it puts it so, so well. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We are all prone to wander. I'm prone to wander, and you are prone to wander. You know your own heart, how easily you can begin to justify your own sin, how easily you can sweep your sin kind of under the rug. And perhaps even your heart is the one that God intends for James's words to penetrate this morning, in much the same way that God used the words of Nathan the prophet to penetrate the heart of King David after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then committed murder to cover up his adultery. David was wandering away from the God he loved, and God used Nathan to go after him. And that's what we'll see next, the need to go after the ones who wander. Sometimes it will be you that begins to wander. Sometimes it will be another beloved member of your church family. In every church, there are wandering sheep because in every Christian, there is a heart that is prone to wander. So what are we called to do when we see another going astray? First, we considered the wandering sheep. Second, the rescuing church. So let's look at our verses again. 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now we are moving to the role of the church in rescuing the wandering sheep. James refers in verse 19 and again in verse 20 to someone, a, a person who brings back the sinner who is wandering. Someone in the church is going after them for the purpose of bringing them back to safety. Now we need to recognize the reality that we live in a time where people don't want anyone in their business. Do you know what I mean? Most of us, if someone starts asking questions that feel a little bit too personal, if they start probing too much, especially in the areas of sin in our life, what do we do? We do our best to kind of keep them at arm's length because we simply don't want to go there. We also tend to get a little bit uncomfortable thinking about getting in someone else's business and having to have a hard conversation with them about sin in their life. I mean, that, that makes one of us, some of us want to crawl under our seat just to, to think about having to do that. Yet it's clear enough in these clear concluding verses that James has in mind, when one of our, when one of our own sheep has gone astray, our job is to go after them. 
This is the rescue mission that's given to us. We have a responsibility to go to them, to find them, and to bring them back. This means, brothers and sisters, we'll have to know others in the church well enough to notice when they're gone, to notice when they're struggling, to notice when they're in sin or when they might be wandering. You're not going to pick up on these things if you don't have a relationship, if you're not involved in the details of of other people's lives. And this also means you'll need to have a humble posture yourself so that when a brother or sister comes to you, you're prepared to listen to what they have to say, trusting that the Lord might just be using them to help you stay on the path of life. Notice also the elders or the pastors aren't assigned with the responsibility of going after the sheep that has gone astray. It just says someone brings him back. And then whoever brings him back This is any person in the church. It may be a pastor, it may be a deacon, or it may be someone else. This is a church-wide responsibility. When we pursue our brothers and sisters in Christ, this is important, we're reflecting our God who pursues his people. Our God is a God who pursues, who rescues, who goes after those who are his. In the same way that the risen Christ pursues Paul on the road to Damascus when he was God's enemy on his way to persecute yet more Christians, Christ knocks him off his horse and he becomes a follower of Christ. God initiates, God pursues, God rescues and tells people, essentially, you're mine now. So we shouldn't be surprised when God employs us in a similar fashion in the body of Christ to pursue others, to rescue others who are part of the family when they go astray. In Luke 15, Jesus tells three parables about things that were lost but then are later found. First is the parable of the lost sheep, then the parable of the lost coin, and finally the parable of the prodigal son. In the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus paints a moving picture of the shepherd leaving the other 99 sheep behind so that he can find the one sheep that has strayed away. Brothers and sisters, this pictures for us the love our Savior has for each and every one of his sheep that he he goes after us and rescues us. And when we see that another sheep has wandered off, James is calling us to be like the shepherd, to fearlessly and boldly pursue those who wander away. This text reminds us that we all need to be prepared to be the rescuer and at times the one in need of rescue. You might not be convinced. You might be thinking, is it really necessary to have, to have people in my business talking to me about my sin? Is it really necessary for me to go and talk to others about sin in their life? I mean, can't God just sort out all of those details and those issues? You might even be wondering if what we're talking about is really that big of a deal. Are the, are the stakes even really that high that I would need to talk about rescuing people who are wandering away? That brings us to the third and final point. First, we were introduced to the wandering sheep. Second, the rescuing church. And third and finally, the soul-saving result. Verse 19 again. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. When we go after a member of our church family who is wandering away from the truth and we call them to repentance and they respond and they come home James tells us there are two glorious results their soul is saved from death first of all and their sins are covered 
when you first read this, there, there's some question as to whether this is talking about the rescuer or the one being rescued who will receive these benefits. So let me help us by just plainly stating what James is doing. He is describing for us why the rescue operation needs to happen for the sake of the person who is wandering away from the truth. These will be the results for the person who is rescued. So let's consider each of these for a moment. First, their soul is saved from death. And this is where we will hopefully begin to understand just how high the stakes really are, as James is talking about here. The wages of sin is death. We all know that verse is in our Bibles. It tells us that sin leads to death. And if a person is on a trajectory where they are wandering away from the truth, they are on a path away from life and toward death. A shepherd goes after his lost sheep because he knows how vulnerable a sheep is to predators when it wanders off by itself. If a wolf or some other large animal can find a sheep that has wandered away by itself, it does not stand a chance it's going to be devoured. This is why the church must go after our brothers and sisters. If they wander from the truth, they are in serious danger. The enemy will seek every opportunity to devour them, and he will seek every opportunity to devour you if you are living in unrepentant sin, if you are wandering from the truth, if you are isolated and walking in the dark rather than the light. But if, on the other hand, we go after them, If, like a good shepherd, we drop what we're doing and we run after them and they listen and they come back, well, their soul has been saved from death. Now, if that doesn't motivate you to to join in on the rescue operation entrusted to the church, I don't know what will. James is helping us to understand why his concluding words here are so important for us to hear and to respond to. Paul Tripp pastor, theologian, talking about these verses, has these very insightful words, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing quite a bit, but he basically says, the most amazing evil the devil has done, first with Adam and Eve, and now with us, is being able to point to death and call it life. So just think about that for a minute. Satan will point to death and call it life. And then Satan convinces us to such a degree that we can point to death and think that it really is life. Now, if we were having a funeral here right now, and there was an open casket right down here with a corpse in it, none of us would be confused. We all know what death looks like, and yet we can't always see sin and its destructive results so clearly. When we sin, we are often convinced that it will lead to life when in reality it leads to death. Proverbs 14.12 tells us there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Let me just say, blind spots in a car are dangerous. We talk a lot about blind spots and for good. Uh, It's something we all have and we all need to be mindful of. Blind spots in a car... Uh, you you know how dangerous they are. In my in my family van, it's this old green van that we've been driving for far too long. Uh, but the blind spots seem to be even worse uh, to me when I'm driving that that vehicle. I can check my mirror and think that I'm completely fine. I will see no car in that mirror whatsoever. And then as I go to kind of you know merge over or switch lanes, 
if I pay attention, continue to look as I'm merging, eventually there's a, oh no, you know, moment where I have to swerve back over to avoid getting into a wreck with the car, you know, that was in that lane. That other car was there the entire time. And yet they were in my blind spot. In fact, the cars that were driving right behind us, I mean, you've probably seen this happen before, where to, to those cars behind, they're watching the whole thing play out right in front of them as clear as day. Oh, no, that car's about to hit that other car. But when I checked my mirror, it was as if that car over there did not exist and wasn't even driving on the same road as me. Now, all of us have blind spots, areas of our lives which may be glaringly obvious to others. To, to us, it may seem as though there's no issue at all with that part of our lives. But to the people around us, it may be an, as obvious a danger as that car that we can't see. And if we continue to merge lanes and if the danger isn't brought to our attention, we may soon crash and potentially end our lives. This is why you and I need rescuers in our lives who will be willing to speak the truth to us when we need it most. This is why we must be willing to have hard conversations with others in the church. This is why we must put James 5, 19 through 20 into practice. Wandering from the truth is not something that usually happens overnight. It's It's usually a slow process that happens gradually over time by justifying this sin and then justifying that sin and and over time we may have reached a place where it's it's if we woke up one day and we're like oh my goodness how did I get here but over time we may wander one little step at a time and now you couldn't be at a place of great danger now I hope you see and feel the urgency of the the task before us we're called to rescue others in light of the reality they could be headed towards eternal destruction if we don't throw them a life raft and do whatever we need to do in order to rescue them. And when someone brings back a sinner from his wandering, their soul will be saved from death, and secondly, their sins will be covered. Or as James says, it will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. When someone brings back a sinner from his wandering, their sins will be covered by the blood of Christ. This is... This is the truth of the gospel. When we are united to Christ by faith, when we confess our sins, our sins are covered by the, the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for sinners. Now, of course, if this person was already a Christian, this was already true of them. But now, after they have repented, they are persevering as a Christian. From a human perspective, James is saying, we're able to see and know for sure they will be considered among those who have had their souls saved from death and their sins covered. Now, the implications here are important for us not just to gloss over. If this person's sins aren't covered, he's paying for them for all eternity in hell. That's the reality. If he's rescued, his sins are covered in Christ because Christ stood in his place and paid for his sins at the cross. This is the difference between life and death. Now, we might rightly ask, is this first saying the person, the member of the church who goes after them, that that person is saving their soul from death somehow and covering their person's sins? And the answer is no. Only God can save a person's soul from death. Only God can cover sins and wash sin away and offer forgiveness. Yet, there is an amazing reality here that we should just catch. God uses means to accomplish his ends, and oftentimes the means he uses are people like you, people like me, people like us. Just think about evangelism with me for a moment. 
God is the one who saves, yet he saves people when you open your mouth and proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ to another person. When you do that, you're not saving that person. But God is pleased to use you as an instrument by which that person will hear the good news and, Lord willing, respond to it in repentance and faith. God also uses means. He also uses members of the body of Christ to rescue Christians who have veered off the path of life and are now walking on a path that leads to death. And let's just say there's a great cliff that they're headed towards. And if they continue on the path they're on, they're just going to walk right off the cliff. But God uses Christians, people in the church, to rescue them before they get to the cliff, to, to get to them, to grab a hold of them, to turn their feet around in the other direction and say, brother, sister, come back home with me. And when that happens, when that person repents and comes back home, we as a church have the amazing privilege of welcoming them with great joy. Now, there are questions we should ask when we're reading these final two verses, and one important question is, can a Christian really wander away from the truth and ultimately experience spiritual death? There are places in Scripture that give us helpful categories for someone who gives the appearance of being a Christian but then eventually falls away. 1 John 2.19 is one such verse. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. When someone gives evidence of walking away from Christ, when they reject Christ, we, we know they were never really of us. They, they were never truly saved to begin with, even though it may have appeared they were for years and years or however long. Christians, those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ, those who have had their sins washed away when they trusted in Christ, they will never fall away. They may wander off the path, but when someone goes after them and calls out to them, Bob or Susie or whatever their name is, they will hear that voice. They will repent. They will return because God will cause them to persevere. The question is not, can I lose my salvation? If God has saved you, God will keep you. You can have rock-solid confidence that that is true. The question is, have you truly been saved? If you have, your life will give evidence of your salvation. And one way that you and everyone else around you will know that you are a Christian is because you will persevere in the faith. Because Christ will hold you fast, and he will never let you go. It's also vital for us to understand that Christians walk in repentance. In the situation James describes here in our text, the result he describes where someone brings back a sinner from his wandering and saves his soul from death and his sins are covered, that is only possible because that person has repented. Those who belong to Christ will give evidence of their salvation through repentance, through persevering in the faith, and God will use others to come along and to keep you on the path of life and at times to pull you back onto the path of life when you have begun to wander. So brothers and sisters, I'll just ask you, are you living with intentionality, seeking to watch out for others? Do you have the kind of relationships? Do you know others well enough to be able to do what this text is calling us to do? This requires a paradigm shift. You have to move beyond thinking about yourself and what the church is doing for you and start intentionally living for the good of others and investing in your brothers and sisters in Christ. I will say we do need to be, to be careful here. You don't want to become a sin hunter. You know, the sin police. Uh, take it upon yourself to go around the church kind of constantly spying out. Oh, did I, sin, did I see sin over there? Oh, did I see sin? Aha! You know, I caught you. 
We don't want to be sin hunters waiting to pounce on you know, sin when we see it. The text is not giving us permission or encouraging us to do that. It is calling us to love one another, to have a healthy concern for one another's well-being, to speak into one another's lives, to share with one another what's going on in our lives. It will require wisdom and discernment to figure out when a person is actively wandering from the truth. Some may just be in need of discipleship. Some offenses may need to be overlooked. There are situations where discipleship may be needed, but a rescue operation is not warranted. So I would encourage you to ask something like, does this person seem to be actively seeking to follow Christ? Does their life and their actions seem to align with the gospel? If so, this may not be a situation that involves wandering from the truth. But when in doubt, seek wise counsel. Ask your pastors for help. I also want to remind you it would not be wise for you to share all of your sin struggles with every single person, but you, you need to find someone, one or more mature believers that you can talk to so that your sin can be in the light, so you can walk in the light, so you can be known, so others can hold you accountable, so that when you're struggling and you begin to wander, someone will know you well enough to speak the truth to you in love and bring you back. Now again, I hope you hear this morning, we all need this. We all must be prepared to rescue and at times to be rescued. Sheep will wander. The church must be ready to rescue, and when it does, it will lead to soul-saving results. James wants us to feel the responsibility we have for each other in the body of Christ. Paul uses the metaphor of a body to help us picture our relationship to our brothers and sisters in the church. We, we all make up different parts of the body, which are all important. So if our arm goes missing or our eyes stop working or our legs have a disease, then the rest of the body should be concerned about its overall health and care for the member of the body that is sick or in need of help. Ultimately, this is why uh, churches even practice church discipline because sometimes people don't respond to the efforts of other Christians going after them. We must remember, even when it comes before the church, it is a rescue operation. The goal is always to rescue the brother or sister who is in trouble to restore them because we love them. Now, to help us just think through what, what James is calling us to do in these verses and kind of put this together, let me, let me give you five things to remember as we seek to apply James 5, 19 and 20. Number one, be willing to regularly examine yourself. I hope this text has awakened us to the reality of our heart's tendency to wander, of how easily we can start to drift and find ourselves wandering away from the truth. If we, if we understand at all how high the stakes are, what great danger we are in when we wander, if we understand that sin leads to death, then it is absolutely necessary for us to regularly engage in self-examination, to pray like David, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Secondly, be ready to pursue. Imagine if a doctor knew that their patient had cancer, but they decided not to tell them. Or if you were walking in tra you know, towards traffic, towards a busy road, and you had a young child next to you, that you didn't know, but all of a sudden you realize that that young child is about to just walk right into oncoming traffic, but you, you didn't say a word and you didn't attempt to stop them. It would be horribly unloving for us to watch another person wander away from the truth and to do nothing about it. So be attentive to the brothers and sisters around you. We ought to be caring for each other. We should be aware when someone is in trouble and we must be ready to rescue. Number three, be gentle. 
Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, restoration, that word that Paul uses in Galatians, that's what James is describing in our verses. When another brother or sister begins to wander, we're seeking to restore them. There's good ways to do that. There are also bad ways to do that. Paul helps us to understand in Galatians 6 that we must go after this in a spirit of gentleness. When we go and seek to restore another person, we must do it with humility and with love. People will not always respond well, and we have to prepare our own hearts and and trust the Lord. But if we go in without love, we're likely to push the person further away. Even if they don't receive what we have to say, they must know that we're coming to them in love, and that needs to be evident in our interactions with them. And Also, I'll just say, built into this by a wise God is the reality that the rescuer needs to check his heart and life before going to another. You may need to address the log in your own eye before trying to help another with the speck in theirs. We must go in humility, love, and gentleness. Number four, pray. James reminds his readers in the verses right before these of the power of prayer and the need for God's people to pray in all circumstances. Now, we certainly shouldn't lose sight of that reality now in these verses. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Pray that we will not wander from the truth. Pray that the Lord will protect you from the schemes of the devil when he tries to convince us that death is actually life. Pray that we will persevere in faith and that we will not be deceived. And when a beloved member of this church wanders away from the truth, please pray for them. Pray that they will be rescued, that their soul will be saved from death, and that their sins will be covered. And then you may also pray and ask the Lord how he might use you toward that end. Number five, be ready to celebrate. When a sinner repents and they come back home, there's no place for holding their sins against them. Remember, their sins have been covered by the blood of Christ. Now, of course, sins have consequences. Even still, be ready to welcome the wanderer back home. When the prodigal son squanders his inheritance and then he finally reaches the end of himself and he comes home, it's moving just how the the picture is even painted. His father sees him coming from a distance And he runs to greet him. And then what does he do when he gets there? He throws his arms around him and he kisses him. Now, even as parents, you can imagine if your son squandered their inheritance and lived the kind of life the son was living, you might not immediately show that kind of compassion and love towards them when you first see them. And yet that's meant to picture for us the love Christ has for us and rescuing us and the same kind of love we should have for our brothers and sisters. But his father sees him coming, he runs to greet him, he throws his arm around him, around him, he kisses him, and the celebration begins. Like the father of the prodigal son, we should be ready to celebrate when a brother or sister has been restored. And when our family took that trip to Ireland last year and we were getting off our final train back in Dublin, the whole process with the trains and all that had gone very well. We were so thankful we got back to the final place where we got off of the last train. Our kids got off, or I helped our kids get off, and then I ran back on the train for just a minute to get some more of our bags. Because at some point, those doors closed, and the train kind of moves on down the road. So I was in a frenzy trying to get kids, get our bags. My wife was helping with something else. 
around that time, Ezra, our four-year-old, who was three at the time, started just kind of making his way back over towards the train and towards that gap. Um, I didn't see it. My wife wasn't, a, wasn't aware of it until all of a sudden I hear Callie, my wife, just yell, Ezra, stop! Now, we train our kids often at, at home. Those of you who, with young kids or can remember having young kids will probably remember something like this. We'll play red light, green light. We'll train them to stop. And we do that often, and it goes well. I will say we have found in public it feels like there's about a 50-50 chance that they will actually respond when we tell them to stop. <clears throat> now, praise God, Ezra stopped just in time. We got to him, grabbed him by the arm, brought him back over uh, to safety. Ezra minded the gap, and we were extremely thankful. Uh, we were able to bring him back to safety. And if you've ever experienced a frightening moment like that with one of your children... And you know, when you pick up that little kid again and you squeeze them a little bit tighter and you're just thankful and excited that, that little guy is okay, that he's safe, and we praise God for, for protecting him. James wants you and me to have that kind of awareness and that kind of urgency when we see someone who's wandering off into danger, that we would be ready to spring to action, to be a means by which God will save their soul from death, to bring them back to safety, and then we should be ready to celebrate. In the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus describes the joy of the shepherd and how he rejoices when he finally finds the sheep that he's been searching for. And when he gets back home, he calls his friends together and his neighbors and he says to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. And Jesus applies the parable to his listeners by describing the great joy in heaven over one sinner, one wandering sheep who repents and comes back home. When the sheep who has wandered is brought back, we should stand ready to throw our arms around them, to welcome them, and to feast and celebrate, because once they were lost, they had wandered away from the truth, but now they are found. So the first words that they should hear from our mouths are, Welcome home, brother. Welcome home, sister. Welcome home. That is, after all, what each and every one of us has experienced when we trusted in Christ. Once we were lost, but God pursued us, he rescued us. He adopted us into his family. We are his sons and daughters. Once we were lost, but now we are found, and we are home. May we praise God for what he has done. May we look out for one another, encourage one another, be ready to rescue, and be rescued as occasion may require. Because the Lord will keep us. We are safe and secure in his hands. But he will use the church as a means by which he will hold us fast. Let me pray for us. Father, what a gracious God you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son who embodies truth. We thank you for the compassion that you have for your children, that you are a God who pursues and rescues them. Father, we thank you for how you have pursued and rescued each and every person here today who has trusted in Christ for their salvation. And Father, we rejoice knowing that you are a good God. When you save us, you keep us. And we can rest knowing that we are yours forever. May we be faithful also to pursue and to rescue those that you've placed in our lives. What a gift our brothers and sisters in Christ are. Father, may we continue to love one another well, continue to serve one another well. And we thank you for this church and for the blessing it is. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
I am so sorry.